You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14, as I've been doing for the last couple of weeks Um, I have made little sheets. They're green. Uh, This is going to be all the references that we're going to be looking at uh, today. So if you want to follow along, don't feel embarrassed to get up right now and get one. Um, So uh, I did not give you many last week, so I thought I would make up for it this week. And uh, so we're going to be doing a lot of turning of pages, but you can anticipate where we're going to be going. This is actually going to be the last sermon that we're going to preach in the book of Ephesians for this 2020 year. Uh, as we come uh, upon the Christmas season. But what we've seen over the last couple of months as we've been going through the book of Ephesians through the first uh, chapter still, is that we've seen that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And today we're going to look at the final blessing that Paul brings up that he mentions before he actually breaks into prayer that we would get these things. And that's very important. That's as When I'm preparing uh, every week, I'm praying intensely that you guys would get this, that I would get this as well. These things are heavenly things. This is not a natural thing. These are not the physical things. These are heavenly things. And I pray, uh, as Paul does, that you would get it, that I would get it, because understanding these things, dwelling on these things, meditating on these things will transform your life, the way that you think Uh, the way that you speak and the way that you act. And so um, today we're going to be looking at that. And all of this, all of this, all that God has done for us was so that we would be to the praise of his glory. How do I know that? Well, I know that because the word of God says it specifically, our text. Um, Three times in this first chapter, Paul says that. Uh, We looked at Uh, Verses 5 and 6, several weeks ago, he said this, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then we'll see it twice today in verse 12. He says this, So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then finally in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We are called to be into the family of God to the praise of his glory. So let's read this passage and then let's look to God for guidance because we need that spiritual, our spiritual eyes to be open. This is the very word of God beginning in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of of his glory. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's look to him for that spiritual illumination. So let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would not treat you as common. I pray that we would treat you as holy. I pray that I and everyone in here would tremble at your word. This is you speaking, speaking life into our lives and our hearts. Help us not to take it lightly. Help us not to dismiss anything. I pray that the enemy would have no place in this place right now, Lord. I pray that he would not be able to distract us. And I pray that we would hear these things, that we would understand these things, and I pray that it would come through just loud and clear today. Open up our hearts, open up our eyes to see what we normally couldn't see, open up our ears to hear what we normally could not hear. And I just pray that you would do this 
so that Christ would be magnified and that your people would be blessed. And we pray this in his name. Amen. This passage before us today is all about inheritance. It's about our inheritance. Uh, we have obtained an inheritance according to verse 11, and we will fully receive that inheritance in the future according to verse 14. So let me ask you a question as we talk about this. Um, what comes to mind when you think of inheritance? I would imagine that most of our minds go wild with that. I'm sure there's not a person in here who is not uh, imagined getting that call that a distant relative that you've never met who is super wealthy has passed away and you are the sole inheritor of her fortune. Everything that she owns now goes to you. And our minds would go crazy thinking about that. All your debts erased, right? Um, everything that you ever wanted can be realized. The best medical care the best college education, right, for you and any children that you may have in the future, a reliable car that you don't have to worry about breaking down every week, a, uh, uh, the, the trip around the world that you've always wanted to go on. Anything that you want now is a realization. Like I said, our minds would go wild with imagination. And when we think about this inheritance from God, you were reminded of the fact that what does God own? God owns everything, right? And if he's offering an inheritance, then this inheritance must be huge, bigger than any inheritance that we could ever think about or imagine. It's a pretty amazing thought. And once again, our minds just are like, whoa, what would it be like? And so what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about what that inheritance is is what is the inheritance that we are promised? Now, if you look at the Bible, Jesus made it clear that, that, that there is a physical element involved in this inheritance. I mean, Jesus, you know, when this whole, when Jesus comes back and this whole world is melted and, and recreated, we are told that we will inherit the earth. We will come back here in this new recreated world and we will inherit this world. It will be ours. It'll be ours. That's a wonderful, wonderful promise. It's a gift to us from the Father. And we've been promised a home in heaven where the streets are gold, where the gates are, are made out of, of pearls, a, a place where there's no more pain or sorrow or sadness or disease or, or anything like that, no depression, no death. We all look forward to a time like this. We look forward to a day when we're, when we're not living paycheck to paycheck, right? When we don't have to worry about our homes breaking down or being swept away uh, by a hurricane. Um, we look forward to a day when there's no more broken relationships, right? When there's no more estrangement between maybe a, a father and uh, a son or a mother and a daughter or friends. There's no more broken relationships. And we look for a day when all those debilitating diseases that make our lives, the debilitating diseases of either the body or the mind are completely done away with those diseases that make life so difficult for us to live. We look forward to a time like that. And if you think about a time in a place like that, that would be heaven, right? I mean, that would be heaven. And you would be right to think that because it's all true. But here's what I want to communicate to you today is that heaven is so much more than that. Heaven is so much more than that. In fact, these things that we just talked about are not the greatest benefit of heaven. What makes heaven heaven is not the streets of gold, okay? It's not the absence of disease and pain. It's not the reunion of people that, you have, that have passed and that you miss. That's part of it, but what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. That's what makes heaven heaven. It is the presence of God. And therefore, when I look at this passage and I hear that we're going to get an inheritance, I would have to say that the greatest inheritance that we get is God himself. And I really want that to sink in because you're thinking, oh man, this is the other stuff that I want, right? Oh, I just get God. Yes, you get God I don't know if you've taken the time to dwell on what 
that means. And I hope uh, that as we go uh, through our, our sermon today that you hear this loud and clear. I believe that this captures what Paul is talking about in this inheritance, what he's trying to communicate here. In fact, some commentators look at this passage and, and the way that the Greek is written, there's a confusion as to whether it's we who are getting an inheritance or God who is getting an inheritance. And the inheritance that he is getting is us. In fact, the way that the Greek is written, this could actually be translated, in whom also we were made an inheritance. It can be translated as that. So this is God getting an inheritance of us. And this would be completely consistent with the Old Testament, where over and over, God talks about his people Israel as his treasured possession, as his heritage, as he lays uh, ownership, lays claim to ownership of them. And so seeing this inheritance as a relationship is consistent. You could go either way, right? It's a relationship that we inherit as we get God, and it's an inheritance that he gets in that he has a relationship with us. And so I want to look at this, and I want to point you to several Old Testament and New Testament passages. The first one uh, going down our list is uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through uh, 3. So you can turn there, or you can just listen. I would rather you turn there if you can, uh, just so that you can see these things uh, for yourself, maybe mark them in your Bible, highlight them on your phone, whatever it may be. But Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and what we have here is we have the call of Abraham. Abraham was called, um, he was called by God, and he would be the father of the faithful. And so here's what God's initial conversation with uh, Abraham is like. He says this, uh, Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What we hear from here is that Abraham was blessed by God so that he could in turn be a blessing to the rest of the world, okay? The blessing that God gave to Abraham, yes, it did include material things such as a land, such as children, such as possessions. It included all of those things, but all of those things I see as a means to an end because the end goal of the blessing was the restoration of the relationship between God and humanity that had been broken because of man's rebellion against God. And the call of Abraham was the first step in the restoration process of that relationship because we know that through Abraham would one day come this guy named Jesus who would bring humanity back to God. And he would break down the wall of separation between us and God. And although Abraham uh, was promised a land um, and, and descendants and, and stuff like that, that was not the primary promise that God was given to him. In fact, if you think about it, Abraham was promised this land and he never inherited it. Neither did his son Isaac, nor his son Jacob, nor his 12 sons. They never really inherited the land. This land, they would not take possession of it to over 400 years after Abraham was called in the time of Joshua. And even when they did acquire the land, you saw that they quickly lost it. And when they got it back, they never really had possession of it. As you read through the Bible, even under the time of, of Joshua and the others. And I believe that the main purpose of the land was for God to establish a people to call his own, to bring a Messiah through that people that would bring the world back to him. It was all about relationship. God wanted a relationship with humanity. And so when we think of an inheritance, of this inheritance in those terms, in relational terms, that should inform what we should desire most in this life. And that is a relationship with God. Relationship is primary. I want you to uh, turn to Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18. You got Genesis 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. Here's the situation that God has promised to bring his people into a land for them to inherit. And he's laid it out, what kind of land this is going to be. And the 12 tribes of Israel are excited about this. I mean, they are excited. They're excited to get their hands on their piece of the land. I mean, this is going to be their home where they'll, they'll, they'll start their businesses, they'll grow their crops, they'll raise their families. They're excited about it. It's what they longed for. And every tribe is promised an inheritance of the land except for one. Except for one. One is not promised an inheritance of the land. You're thinking, well, what did they do so wrong that they're not going to get an inheritance of the land? It's not that they did anything wrong. It's the tribe of Levi. And the Levites were really the teachers and the worship leaders, if you will, uh, of the people of God. And here's what God says to them regarding their lack of inheritance of the land. Speaking to um, Aaron, who was the first high priest, here's what he says in Numbers uh, 18, verse 20. He says this, and the Lord said to Aaron, uh, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion in your inheritance among the people of Israel. I don't know what that does to you, but that's a pretty amazing statement by God. You're not gonna get any land. I'm gonna be your inheritance, me. I love that. There was something far greater than the land. There was something far greater than the possessions uh, that they could acquire in a land, and it was God himself. God would be their inheritance. And this leads us to what I see uh, as by far the single greatest promise of the Bible, the single greatest promise in the Bible. And to see that, I want you to turn with me to the uh, prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, we're going to be in the, uh, the uh, major prophets for a little bit here. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. And I really, really do want you to listen to this. Um, I am convinced that in most of my sermons, uh, the, the average person is not learning anything new. It's not like you've never heard this before. But we have spiritual amnesia where we forget these things and then we start to live in a certain way. We start to uh, desire things more than God and we shouldn't desire them. And I want you to see what God uh, lists as the single greatest promise uh, that he could ever give to humanity. Jeremiah 24 verses 6 and 7 says this, I will set my eyes, this is God speaking, I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And here it is, this is the greatest promise. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. People, that is the greatest promise that God has ever given or could ever give to anyone. The greatest promise is relationship, a relationship with God. God would own them and they would own God, so to speak. I was talking with a friend this past week and um, he said that after his mother had passed away, he inherited everything that she had. And he said that the possessions were great and helpful. There was only one problem. And what was that? there was no longer a relationship with his mom, right? She was gone. And he said he would have gladly given back the possessions and more to have the relationship back. We were created for relationships and we were ultimately created for a relationship with God. And so God's greatest promise to us is that we can have a relationship with him. And this promise is repeated over and over again. When something's repeated in the Bible over and over again, 
That's how they emphasize it to say, if you missed it the first time, I'm hoping that you don't miss it this time. And if you miss it that time, I'm hoping that you don't miss it this time. And so he repeats it over and over again. The verses that we're going to look at right now that I'm going to ask you to turn to are basically going to say the same thing. It may seem redundant. Why do we have to look up all these? Because I want you to see them with your own eyes. I want you to get this, that there is no greater promise than what we're talking about here. So I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 38 through 39. Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 39. And this is God speaking again. He comes right out of the gate in this verse, and here's what he says. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. There we have it again, right? I will be their God and they shall be my people. I want you to turn over a couple books to Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel chapter 11. Uh, you have Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 20. Ezekiel 11, verse 20. <clears throat> and here's what God says there. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Over and over again, he says, it turn uh, over a couple chapters to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 23 and 27. Ezekiel 37, 23 and 27. There God says this, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And then skipping down to verse 27, he says this, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Over and over again, he says this. And what I want you to note in that last verse is that phrase, my dwelling place, because we're going to return to that, because it's a very important concept when we're talking about our inheritance and that relationship that we have with God. So the final Old Testament passage that I want you to turn to is Zechariah chapter 8, verse 8. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 8. And here's what God says here. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. I love that little added phrase at the end. I will be, you know, I will, they shall be my people. I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. God is the one who makes us righteous. This is the great promise. It's repeated over and over again. Now, some may object um, and say, well, wait a second. All these passages that you just had us turn to are from the Old Testament. They're all to Israel specifically. And in fact, if you look at the context, a lot of them are talking about Israel going back into their land. So they apply to Israel. Do they apply to us today? And I would say, true enough, they were written to uh, the Old Testament people of God, but the promise given to them is the same promise that is given to us as well. And let me show you what I mean by that. If you're back in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and 13, those of you, like, if you, I've been putting out videos about how you can study along with me through this book so that when you come, you're just like, you've done a little bit of study on your own. You're like, oh, now this makes sense or whatever. Um, but 12 and 13, I told you to look at the pronouns that are in there because you have these different personal, these second person pronouns. You have the we and the you in there. For example, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 says this, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory in him you also. Okay, so he's making a distinction right there between the we and the you. So who are the we and who are the you? Well, we don't have time to go into this right now, but if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 2, particularly beginning in verse 11 and following, he seems to be implying that the we are the Jews. 
the Jews, the, the Jews that God had called um, uh, through Abraham. And the you are the Gentiles, the Gentile church. And so what we see is that what God has done is he's taken these two separate people groups, these groups that were really hostile to each other, that hated each other. The Jews absolutely hated the Gentiles. He has taken these two separate groups and he has made them into one new people. He's made, he's broke down all the barriers that would, that, that separated them and has made them into one new people. Therefore, all the promises that were made to Israel apply to the us now, the Gentiles in the present and in the future. But I don't want you to take my word for it. Um, let's see if the Bible uh, is consistent and says that that is true. So uh, I want you to turn to the New Testament book now of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. This was written after Jesus had come, after Jesus was crucified, had died, and was buried, after he rose again from the dead, after he ascended into heaven, after he had sent out his disciples, and the message of the good news of Jesus had gone to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. This is written after that has been put into motion. And here's what he says. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There we have that exact same promise that was given to Old Testament Israel, now applying to the New Testament church. It is the same message. It is the same promise. But we see an added theme here, as we talked about before, of God dwelling, God dwelling with them. He says, for you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. This is the great promise fulfilled ultimately. To see that, I want you to quickly turn to uh, Revelation chapter 21. We're not going to comment too much on this, but Revelation 21, this is the last book of the Bible. Uh, the last chapter is Revelation 22. So um, Revelation 21. Here the Apostle John sees this vision of a new heaven and a new earth coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. And there is a message that God wants to communicate to his people. And this is the message, people. I'm sure you've read it before, but listen to it. Take it in. This is God. Here's what he says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is ownership. That is dwelling in the midst of them. That is not just loving them from afar. That is being right there with them. In fact, he says it, that God himself will be with them. And then he says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the great promise finally realized when we are in heaven and our bodies have been resurrected and there's no more sin, no more pain, no more disease. And we see God as he is and we live with him forever. We could go on and on, but let's move on. I want you to look at one more New Testament passage in terms of this promise. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. The promise is repeated here beginning in verse 10. And this passage is important in Hebrews chapter 8 because it, induce, it introduces us to another important element which is connected to being God's people and having God as our God. And that is the idea of knowing God, of knowing God. And this is very important. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws 
into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other his neighbor and each, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is a direct quote from uh, Jeremiah chapter 21, or 31. But here again, we have that wonderful promise that God is ours and we are his. And then we have that other beautiful promise about knowing God. And this is what I want to say. Knowing God is key. It is key. There is nothing greater. Listen to me. There is nothing greater than knowing God. Absolutely nothing greater than knowing God. And let me show you what I mean by this, okay? Um, I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. Back to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, verse 23 and 24. And here's what I want to say as you're turning there. There are many things in this world uh, that people take great pride in. All right? There are people who are really, really intelligent. They have so many degrees, MD, PhD, you know, master of this, whatever it is. And they've read books and articles, and they're smarter than anyone else in the room. And they take pride in those things. Or someone else might be really, really strong. They're athletic. I mean, you, you put them on the basketball court or the football field or whatever it is, and they just excel. They just beat everyone else. And there are other people who are really, really wealthy, and they could, they could, they don't have to deny themselves anything, and they take pride in that. That they can live in the nicest of houses, have the nicest of clothes, drive the the nicest of cars, eat the best of food, go on the best vacations, and they pride themselves on those things. And I want to say that there's nothing wrong with any of that, right? There's nothing wrong with being strong and athletic. There's nothing wrong with being smart. Uh, and intelligent. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But if you think that that's all there is, you have missed it. And so Jeremiah brings us back to reality. Uh, and here's what God says in Jeremiah 9. He says this, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That he understands and knows me. The knowledge of God, that intimate knowing of God is what matters most. And when I talk about knowing God, I hope that you understand what I'm talking about. I am not talking about knowing facts about God. Because here's the reality. Satan knows more facts about God than you do. But Satan does not know God in an intimate way. To really know someone, you have to spend time with them. And the more time you spend with God, the more you love God and the more you want to get to know God, the deeper things of God. That is what knowing God is. Knowing God implies a deep, intimate relationship with God. And so God basically is saying this in Jeremiah 9. He's saying this, I don't care how wealthy you are. I don't care if you have enough money to purchase the whole North American continent. If you don't know me, you are dirt poor. You're worse off than the worst beggar in the poorest country. And I don't care how strong you are. If you don't know me, you are weak, you are impotent. And I don't care how smart you are. If you don't know me, you are a fool. That is how important the knowledge of God is, that intimate knowing of God, that intimate relationship with God. Really getting to know God is the most important activity that you and I can engage in greater than any athletic pursuit, greater than any academic pursuit, greater than any career pursuit, greater than any pursuit of any other relationship in this world should be your pursuit of a relationship with God. God, I want to know you more. 
that's what our heart should be. This should be our top priority and our top pursuit. To show you this, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, this is the New Testament. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And I want you to see what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say about this. Okay, in verses 1 through 6, we're not going to read those. He's just talked about the amazing pedigree that he has, the amazing accomplishments that he has been able um, to do in his life. I mean, it just off the chart. And then beginning in verse 7, he tells us exactly what he thinks about those accomplishments and that pedigree. Here's what he says, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then listen to verse 10. This is Paul's heart's cry that I may know him. That's what Paul wanted more than anything, that he would know Jesus. He counted everything else as trash, as trash. When he considered Jesus, I mean, you think about it. If he's looking at all the things in the world, he's thinking, these things are pretty impressive. These are great. I want to pursue these. And then he got a glimpse of Jesus and he said, oh, trash, trash, trash. Why would I ever go back to that? That's what he saw. He saw Jesus as the greatest thing. He wanted to know Jesus. And in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, he said, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says this, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Christ is your life. You're seeking the things above, not because there's wealth there, not because there's health there, not because there's power there. You're seeking them because Christ is there and Christ is your life. Christ is your all. And if you haven't realized that yet, you haven't grasped the full implications of the gospel, that it's Jesus. You get Jesus. We're all looking for things in this world to bring us joy. The problem is that we're looking in all the wrong places. We're looking to, to find lasting joy and satisfaction in things like sex and relationships. We're looking to find this lasting joy in money and material possessions or fame and fortune or whatever else it is. And the key to what brings lasting joy and happiness is found in Psalm 1611. I know this is a verse that we talk about a lot here. But the psalmist says this. He's like, where do I find my lasting joy and satisfaction? And he says this, in your presence, He's speaking to God. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And what you need to notice in that verse is this, is you have both quality and quantity. You have both quality and quantity. You do, it's not a temporary joy, a half joy, a three-quarters of a joy that lasts forever, nor is it a full joy that lasts for just a short time. It is a full, overflowing joy like you've never experienced in your life that never, ever ends. Fullness of joy forevermore. And where is that joy found? It's found in the presence of God. It's found in being in his presence. Does that inheritance that we're talking about, does it include the streets of gold? Does it include a body that is free from disease and depression and death? Does it include the reunion of those who have passed on before us who are in Christ? Absolutely, it includes all of those things. But those things are all secondary to being with Jesus. They're all secondary. And I believe that this relational aspect uh, of this inheritance is seen actually in the first chapter of Ephesians, in the verses that we've looked at in the past, 
verses 3 through 14. Remember that we have been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, to be blessed by God means to have God's face shining upon you with the light. The problem is that God, the Bible is clear that God cannot look upon evil. Therefore, if God wants to look upon us, which he does, then he has to deal with our sin, which he has. And what we see, what we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1 is we've seen that he has made us holy and blameless before him. He has made us fit for his presence. And as soon as he did that, he invited us into his family. He adopted us as his sons and daughters. That is relationship. I want to be with you. And then he makes it final by adopting us into his family. This is not God loving us from a distance. This is God loving us right there, being with us. This relationship, this intimate relationship is what it's all about. He gets us and we get him. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is Jesus. This is his final hours before he's going to go to the cross. And he prays. He gets on his knees and he prays for us. And listen to what he says, because this goes along exactly with what we're talking about. He says this, John chapter 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Let me stop there just for a second. Do you hear that we have been given to the Son by the Father as a gift? That is ownership. We are a gift. Now, I look at my life, I have so much sin in it, I'm like, this is not a really great gift. But Jesus considered it to be a great gift. He was given. I was given to the Son by the Father. And the Son is going to give me eternal life. What's eternal life? Here's what he says. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God. That's what eternal life is. It's knowing the Father. It's knowing the Son. Jesus could not be clearer. Knowledge of God is the greatest thing in this world. And now to guarantee this inheritance, he has given us a pledge, a seal in the person of the Holy Spirit. I wish we had more time to go into the parallel passages uh, that speak about the Holy Spirit being um, our, our seal, but we don't. We'll just look at the passage before us in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read again verses 13 and 14. Here's what Paul says. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Promised Holy Spirit because he was promised. In the Old Testament book of Joel, he was promised that he would come. And then during Jesus' earthly ministry, he was promised that he would come, especially in the first chapter of Acts, where Jesus said, hey, you wait here because the Holy Spirit's coming. And in Acts chapter 2, what happened? The Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit is the seal. He is the seal of our inheritance. The, 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 whole, the Holy Spirit has several different functions. He has the, the function of, of convicting the world of sin. He has the function of empowering believers for service to God. But here, his function is a pledge, sealing believers. In fact, in uh, Ephesians 4.30, Paul tells his readers not to uh, grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom they were sealed for the day of redemption. The, the Holy Spirit is sealing you for that final redemption of your body. These uh, two words of seal and guarantee are important to understand. I just want to talk about them briefly here as they point to the assurance of our inheritance. A seal is a mark of ownership or authenticity. In the ancient times, they would put a seal on their cattle 
saying this cattle belongs to me. They would even uh, put seals on slaves, which would say this slave belongs to me. The seal, my seal is on them. My name is on them. They belong to me. And so the seal that God puts on us is not an external seal. It's an internal seal. God puts his Holy Spirit within us to mark us as his own. Whoever has the Spirit of God is his, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. The word guarantee in verse 14 is also significant. Um, in ancient uh, commercial transactions, it signified a first installment, a down payment. And anyone who's ever purchased a house or a car and you have to put down a down payment on there, you know that the down payment is actually part of the payments, right? It is the first payment that you do. And the rest you're saying, I will continue to pay. You will get the full amount. This is what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. We have been given the Holy Spirit and we will fully inherit the Holy Spirit when we are with God um, one day in heaven. God has given us this promise. This is the promise of our inheritance. And it's such a wonderful truth. There's so much more that we can say, but I want to uh, close the way that we began. And that's by emphasizing um, that all of this has been done so that we should be to the praise of God's glory. Uh, an author and commentator, John Stott, said the following regarding this. He said, quote, the glory of God is the revelation of God. And the glory of his grace is his self-disclosure as a gracious God. To live to the praise of the glory of his grace is both to worship him ourselves by our words and deeds as the gracious God that he is, and to cause others to see and to praise him too, end quote. This is what Israel was supposed to do. They were to live to the praise of God. God, if you think about the land of Israel, where it is, that small, tiny land, and God promises them this land. This is the God of this universe, right? And he's promising this land, and if you've ever seen it, it's not the greatest land in the world, right? I mean, I would have like, how about Hawaii or something like that, right? But Israel, the significance of Israel is where it's placed. It was placed at the crossroads of the world. So if you wanted to get down, you know, from, you know, Europe down into Africa, you had to go through Israel. If you wanted to get from Asia down into Africa, you had to go through Israel and vice versa. God placed them at the crossroads of the world. And God said this, praise me, worship me, live out my commandments among you. And when the nations, I will bring the nations to you. And when they cross through your land and they say, how can such a tiny nation be so prosperous? How can such a tiny nation be so well protected? You can say it's because of our God that we serve. Let me introduce you to him. That is what they were to do. They were to live to the praise of the glory of God. However, Israel failed in so many ways. And now God is not calling us to, uh, to just sit there. God is calling us to go out into all the world. And we are to live to the praise of of his glory. And this is what I want to encourage you to do. Let us not fail to do this. Let us worship God in the way that we live, in a way in the way that we live so much so that it causes other people to take notice of us. Let us live in such a way that our light shines before others, that they see our good works and say, why do you do that? How can you be like that? And we can say, well, let me tell you, about the God that I serve, that has completely transformed my life, that has completely invited me into a relationship with him, and I will be with him forever and ever. This is what it's about. So here then are the how and the why of God's people uh, who are his heritage and his possession. How did we become his people? Well, the answer, according to Paul in Ephesians, is according to the good pleasure of his will. Why? Did he make us his people? The answer is for the praise of his glory. Thus, everything we have and are in Christ both comes from God and returns to God. It begins in his will. It ends 
in his glory. For this is where everything begins and ends. So this is how I wanna close. I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions. Are you in? Are you in? Are you owned by God? Do you own God? If not, you can. How? Once again, our passage tells us, verse 13, Ephesians chapter one says this, in him you also, when you heard, you're hearing it right now, you heard the truth of the gospel of your salvation and believed. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, with the promised Holy Spirit. It is hearing the word of God and it is believing in God. It's believing. This is what God is calling you to do. And when you believe in him, you are saved from your sins. Those things which separate you from God, you're saved from them. You're forgiven from all of them. And you're welcomed into his family. And you are an heir. And you will inherit God as your God. It's amazing. I, I, we've, we, I've, I, I know I shared this a, a while ago, but I remember being like in uh, church services and we would sing that the song, Amazing Grace. And we get to that last line and it's just like, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And I remember thinking this, like 10,000 years of singing? Like, I mean, I was in a church that only sang hymns, and I'm like, I can't even get through five verses of some of these hymns, right? I mean, it's just like the guy's like, let's turn to this hymn. You're like, oh, five verses. And you go to the bathroom, right? And you come back, and you're still only on verse three. And you're like, how long is this going to? And so when I'm thinking about heaven and like singing for 10,000 years, I'm like, oh, my goodness, that doesn't sound like heaven to me. And then the more I started to look into this, I realized the fact is this, that we're not going to be singing for the first 10,000 years. We're going to be standing before the presence of God with our mouths open, our jaws on the ground, thinking that's God, that's who God is. This is what I get to inherit. And that's what you do. And so I just want to invite you, if you haven't done that, come to him. Receive him as your inheritance. And if you already have, people spend some time dwelling on the fact of what you get in God, you get everything. So uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you. It's amazing. And once again, I know, I know that the enemy is present here and the enemy is, is trying to distract us with whatever else it may be. And I just pray, I really, really pray against that. Lord, I pray that we would see this and that we would know who you are and we would realize that, that we would desire nothing else besides you nothing else lord not looking for those uh external blessings of possibly like the money or the material possessions but that we would just want you and your presence and we pray this in the name of jesus amen